You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Hi! It's us, the Sanders. Hi. Jim and Joina. I'm Joina. Now, I know you opened the door and you went, uh-oh, it's those nosy uh -oh. neighbors. Nosy neighbors. But we're not no, nosy. We're not. Well, kind of we are. Maybe. <laughs> Here's the deal. A lot of times throughout the years, we've knocked on your door and said, hey, what can we do for you? Yeah. You know? Because that's the type of people we are. But this time, we're going to kind of turn the tables. Flip-flop. And ask <laughs> you what you can do for us. Yeah. Hey, 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 hold the phones, hold the phones. You see, we'll just cut to the quick, okay? Yeah. We have no money. We're broke. We got nothing. Yeah, zippo zookus. Nada. Bookus. You see, what we've done is we've taken the happy train to credit town. Woo, woo. And we've been having so much fun, we are up woo. to dead in our eyeballs. Over our heads. So we need your help. Yeah. Okay, 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 okay. I know what you're thinking. Hey, aren't you believers? And we are. We are. We love the Lord. So much. But we've been loving the world. Woo! <laughs> you guys have some great stuff out there. Really do. And our house is proof. We got so many gizmos and gadgets. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> and we ain't about to give them up. Nope. Okay. So here's what we've decided to do. Yeah. We have proposed a bailout package for you to help us out with. What do you say? Yeah. Oh, 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 hey. Hey, Senator, hold on there, okay? You see, we need your help because we are scared. Yeah, we're so stressed out. We got creditors nipping at our heels like a duck on a jing bug. She's got away with words, and it's so true. Yeah, yeah. It's so oh, true. We're so scared. It, we're like a, a long tail cat in a room full of rocking chairs. All right, Juno, that's enough. Okay. See, here's the deal. The Bible says in the book of Malachi. That's Malachi. Whatever. It says, God says, says, hey, 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 test me with your money. Bring all your tithe into Bring the storehouse. <laughs> and I'll just be honest with you. I failed every test. And my storehouse is about to have a pool. Woo! We are so excited. Yeah. And we ain't getting rid of that. Nope. So what do you say? Can you help us? Yeah. We've, we've earmarked this rescue yeah. plan. Oh, hey, 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 hey. It's good stuff. It's win-win. Come on. Okay. At least, at least just give us some flour. Can we have some flour? Oh. Hey, our son's birthday is this weekend. You could just take that flower and make us a whole cake. What do you say, huh? Yeah. Well, that's a fine howdy-do. I know. Well, I guess it's back to the house to do a revision on the rescue plan. Well, we got to hurry. I got a manicure in 30 minutes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good morning. We're, we're all a little bit skeptical about people asking us for money, aren't we? Um, you see people in public with a sign and there's something in your head that wonders, am I being scammed? Is there a need? Um, we get phone calls, whether it's telemarketers or somebody soliciting. My favorite is the ones that still come in the mail with a self-addressed stamped envelope. Like, we've taken care of the postage for you. Just stick in your check. But we're skeptical of it because there are people out there scamming, lying, deceiving, and it, it starts to get old. However, people abusing, scamming, lying about money doesn't change the truth of what God says about money at all. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the Bible, um, the Word of God talks about money, investments, stewardship, finances, over 800 times. Um, that's more than a few. If you read the Gospels, um, and you read everything that Jesus said and that Jesus taught, 
over 25% of what Jesus taught had to do with money. Why is that? Um, you know, we, we wonder why it is because for us, it's kind of awkward and uncomfortable to talk about it. Um, but here's the thing. Even if we don't like to talk about money, Jesus says that our money likes to talk about us. It tells a story about who we are. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your investments are, the things that you place value on, those are going to reflect where your heart belongs. So in other words, if you take a look at where I spend my money, you take a look at my bank account, it says, hey, everybody, come and look at what Brian's fi- Brian finds valuable, at where Brian's heart is. The Lord came to his people through the prophet Malachi, and he told them, I've examined your hearts, and your hearts are far from me. Return to me. And this was going to have to do with their money, with their stuff. Take a look with me this morning in Malachi chapter 3. Last week, um, we see God come to the people and he says, you've wearied me with your words, with the things that you've said. You've spoken wrongly of me because even though your eyes perceive, you think that what you're seeing is the people around you who don't follow me are prospering and you do follow me and, and things are failing, you're not understanding. I will send a messenger and I will send a Messiah. And then the Lord says, um, I will be a refining fire to those who believe me, to those who trust me, but I will be a consuming fire to those who don't. Now look at how he follows this up in Matthew chapter, th- excuse me, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. He begins by saying, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Last week, we, we used a word in describing the, the Lord that the Lord is immutable. Um, this is a, an unusual word that means that God does not change. Um, God does not contradict himself. The word tells us numerous times that the Lord is the same yesterday in eternity past. He's the same today. He will be the same forever. The Lord doesn't contradict himself. The Lord does not go back on his word. And he says here, this is why you are not consumed. You're not consumed because I don't change, because I am who I say that I am, and I will always be. At the beginning of Malachi, the Lord said, I have loved you. He still does. The Lord says, I have made a covenant and I've made a promise with you. He still keeps it. We sing a song in here together every once in a while that says, it doesn't matter what I feel, it doesn't matter what I see. My hope will always be your promises to me. The reason that we can sing that song is because God doesn't change. Because God doesn't waver or go back on his promises. God does not renege on his covenant. In, in Malachi, right here in chapter 3, he calls the people of Israel children of Jacob. The reason that he does this is to remind them of the covenant that he made with their forefathers and that he keeps that promise, he keeps that covenant. The issue that we're having here 
is that they haven't. And so when we say that the Lord does not change, we also understand that the Lord does not need to change. We do. We do. Verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? The people have repeatedly turned away from God. They've walked away from him. They've abandoned his ways. He says, you've scorned my laws. You've continually disobeyed me. Return to me and I will return to you. And now for like the fourth or fifth time here in Malachi, the people of Israel question God. Return to me and I will return to you. And their response is, how can we return to you if we've never left? How can we return to you, God, if we've never gone away? This is, in effect, the people of Israel huddling up and talking about it amongst themselves and coming back and saying, hey God, we've discussed this and we're not really sure what you're seeing or you're missing, but you're wrong. We're not, we're not really know how we're supposed to come back to you. We never left. We're here, man. We're all good. And this is a very dangerous place to be. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, repentance is seeing what God has said and done. God has said, this is my way. And acknowledging, oh, I have gone another way. And regardless of how much I think it varies from God's way, I've recognized this is not God's way. I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to come back to him and acknowledge, God, I have been wrong. I'm coming back and acknowledging only you are right and I'm walking in your ways again. The people of God in this instance are saying, hey God, we don't really know what you're talking about. How can we repent if, if we haven't run away from you? How can we return to you if we've never gone away, Lord? Look at verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You want to know how you have left me? You've robbed me. Here they argue again. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. At some point, the Israelites had stopped faithfully bringing back to the Lord what he required of them. And here comes this big church word that we hear and we wonder, oh, isn't that like an Old Testament thing? Is that still relevant? What's the big deal with the tithe? What are we to make of this? Should I care? Well, the tithe is something that was instituted in Moses' time during the time of God giving the law. That my people, God said, will bring back to me foundationally. Okay, so what God is saying is this is where it's all going to begin. This is the basics. You're going to bring back to me the first 10%. You're going to bring back to me the first fruits of your labor. So like the first thing that you pick, the first thing that you earn, that comes back to me. The firstborn of your flocks, you're going to bring that to me. 
And now see, this all really truthfully begins with an understanding of who God is and who we are. In that we aren't owners, we're managers and we're stewards. That we understand that every good and perfect gift comes from God above. And you might you know, want to push back and argue and say, now wait a minute, Brian. Um, I work my butt off like 50 hours a week. I earn that money. I would ask you, who gave you that butt? God did. Who gave you the gifts and the strengths and the talents that you have to go out and make that job? God did. The scripture tells us that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And we say, I don't know what that means because I don't have cattle. That's right, you don't. God has all of it. That is David's way of proclaiming to us, God's got everything that you need. It begins with us understanding who God is and who we are in light of that. And so God comes and says, I'm going to help you with this, and I'm going to institute the tithe. Now, going back to when this was instituted, you remember that we have the 12 tribes of Israel, and one of those tribes are the Levites. Well, God had said to the Levites, you won't own anything. You won't own land. I will be your provider. I will be your protector as long as you are serving my people. These were the priests. And so the priests, they carried out their duties, but they didn't have jobs. They didn't have land or anything like that. Now, so imagine what God did was, God said, one of the ways I'm going to provide for you is through the rest of my people. Okay? So think about this. When the people stopped faithfully bringing back to the Lord what they were required to bring, the Levites stopped receiving what God had intended. And at some point, they had to find a way to work. It's quite possible that in Malachi's day, these were the very first bivocational pastors. Got to find some way to bring in some money. And it's also possible when we think about it, to consider that maybe this had something to do with the neglect of some of the priestly duties. God had intended for all of their time and attention to be on interceding for the people and mediating between the people. Well, now those loyalties and those responsibilities were divided. They weren't getting the attention that they needed. And the priest, their hearts began to drift away from the Lord. You have to also keep in context everything that was going on, not to give the Israelites a pass, but just to remember the situation at hand here. If you were an Israelite at this time, Everything at least seemed to be and appeared to be really bad. Their economy was awful. Their crops were dying. They were being invaded, being invaded by pest. There wasn't enough rain. And then because of all of this, all of the neighboring nations were mocking God's people. And so at some point, individually, and then corporately, they began to kind of come up with a solution of, I guess we're going to have to keep everything to ourselves. And God comes back and says, um, no, that's not my solution. And the Lord issues a command here, but this command is followed with a promise. And it's a promise of blessing. Look at verse 10. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test 
says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer, the pest among you. I will rebuke it for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. Your vine in the field will not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all of the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of the delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is where we have to be very, very careful about what we teach and how we teach and read and understand these verses. Where this text is very often incorrectly taught is that we give in order to get. That we, are to, we should bring back to God because He will then pour out blessing on us. Wrong. That's being taught probably all over the world somewhere today. That's wrong. That's not what God is saying here. And you and I, if we think about it past our face, we know that that whole idea, you know what that will feed? That will feed greed. Because there's a thing in each and every one of us, and, and we have to fight it back through the power of the Spirit. There's a thing in me that every once in a while says, you know what? You deserve a little more. More would be good for you. Keep it for yourself. You deserve it. Nobody needs to feed that beast in me or you. There's something in us there. That would feed greed. We don't give in order to get. Friends, we give in order to be obedient. God has said, this is what I require of you. We bring back to God to be obedient. And when we do, this feeds faithfulness and generosity. Because that is the character of God being manifested and fed, if you will, within us. It helps if we understand that there are promises and then there are principles. The scripture is filled with promises and principles. It's our responsibility to distinguish between the two. Several years ago, in a sermon on these verses, Mark Driscoll um, pointed out um, a way of understanding the promise, the principle. And I want to kind of share it with you. To me, it makes a lot of sense and it's quite accurate. In the scriptures, we find what we would call one-time promises. One-time promise. We also find all-time promises. And then there's a third category. We find one-time promises with all-time principles. Let me give you an example of a one-time promise. When God was talking to Moses and sending him back into Egypt to confront Pharaoh and bring his people out of slavery, God said, Moses, you see that staff in your hand? When you're in front of Pharaoh, you throw it on the ground and it will turn into a snake. And sure enough, Moses threw that staff to the ground, it turned into a snake. Pick it back up by the tail, Moses, and it'll turn back into a staff. And he did. One-time promise. So, Maybe you're thinking about sharing the gospel with your neighbor. I would encourage you, if you happen to have a staff at home in your garage, that you don't go home and concoct a plan of, well, hey, God did this with Moses. I'm banking on this. Don't do that. Am I saying that God can't do that any longer? I'm not saying that at all. Um, but I don't know about it happening anytime lately. 
God had a very direct purpose in why he did that. One-time promise. But now let's talk about an all-time promise. How about Romans chapter 10, verse 9? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know who that promise is good for? Everyone. Because verse 13 says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you, 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 if I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart God raised him from the dead, I will be saved. That promise was good the moment Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended back to the Father. It was good 200 years ago. It was good two weeks ago. It's good right now. And it will be good until the moment Jesus splits the sky and returns for his people. All-time promise. But now here we are in Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10. One-time promise, all-time principle. God says to his nation of people whose crops are dying, being invaded by pest, they're drying out, you, all of you, you come back to me, return to me, bring back to me what's required of you. Be obedient to me and watch and see. I will remove the pest, I will bring the rain, I will supply the need. Those nations that are mocking you, God says here in verse 12, then all the nations will call you blessed. So is God saying, hey, he's going to do that for us right here, right now. This exact specific thing. No, he's not. It's a one-time promise. However, there's an all-time principle going on here. God has said, this is what I require of you. And God has proven time and time again, I'm faithful. I will not go back on my promises. I will not renege on my covenant. But I am calling you as my people to walk in obedience to me. Again, this is not about us being blessed. It's about us being obedient. If you approach the scriptures with, Hey God, how do you want to bless my socks off today? It's very highly likely you're going to read something in there in a way that maybe it's not intended to be read. It's not about our blessing, it's about being obedient. There's possibly someone in here at this point who all you have heard me say is, God wants your money. Um, and you might be thinking, so you're, that's what you're saying, God wants my money. Actually, no. I'm saying way more than that. God wants your money, your marriage, your home, your family, your time, um, your talents, your strengths, your weaknesses. Basically, God wants your whole life, and he wants it for his glory. With the understanding that his glory is always for our good. Always. But God is saying, no, no, this isn't just about your, your bank account. It's about your life. I, I'm asking that you bring it all. Obedience is not about our, our blessing. It's about God's standard. Okay? It's about that God has said, this is the truth. This is the way life works 
best. But let me add to that by saying this. Obedience is not about our feelings either. Okay, It's about God's standard. It's not about us being blessed. It's about God being blessed. God's glory. It's not about our feelings. It's about God's standard. Your feelings today, are they the same feelings that you had yesterday? Probably not. I assure you that if you looked at my feelings in the scope of a week, it would look like an EKG reading. But remember what God is? God is immutable. God does not change. God does not renege. God does not go back. God has said, here is my truth. Walk in it. The problem is is that we often bring a skewed view and perspective to this. And what I mean by that is we want to feel a certain thing before we'll do a certain thing. We want to feel the right way before we'll do the right thing. And this is backwards thinking. If you and I went to lunch today and we were eating and you said, man, Brian, I went to the doctor and the doctor said, I got to lose 25 pounds. And I've come to the realization, maybe he's right. So I've thought through this and I have now got a plan and it's a good one. Um, On January 1st, uh, I am asking God to make me feel better. Make me feel like I've lost 25 pounds. And when I start to feel that way again, then I'm going to start eating right and exercising. I sure hope I feel good January 1st. I will pat you on the back and say good luck with that. Because you know that that's backwards thinking. There are things that you have to do to make that change to begin to feel a certain way. I believe that at times there are fractures in marriages Maybe with all of us. And, and, and what happens is, a, a husband, a wife comes to the point, and they, I've heard these words many times before. I used to feel a certain way. I don't feel that anymore. And what happens is a spouse wants to feel those things, and then I'll begin loving my spouse. Then I'll begin respecting again. Forget that. That doesn't work. You have to start loving for her, loving her and sacrificing for her. You have to start respecting him. You have to begin pouring your life into one another, dying to yourself, and then see if you don't feel the right way. Do the right thing, and then watch and see if you don't feel the right way. But again, not to pass off blame, but to just make sure we understand the landscape that we are living in. You and I live in a culture right now that says that what you think and feel, that's ultimately what ought to guide everything that you do. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. I'm all about individualism in that God created every one of us uniquely. But see, when that begins to foster a thing in me that says what I think and what I feel is more important than what God has said to be true, we're in big trouble. Obedience is not about our feelings, but about God's standard. And let me wrap this up by saying this. Our obedience, and this morning we're specifically talking about in giving, Our obedience is not for God's benefit. It's for our own. I'm pretty sure you're aware of the fact that God does not need your money. 
in all honesty, this is not about the church needs your money. It's not. See, the thing about it is, the Lord knows our propensity to be seduced by the stuff of this earth. God knows that you and I have a temptation to fall in love with these things. The Lord knows that the tighter my hand grips the stuff of this earth, that the tighter my heart is going to follow right behind. My heart's a total follower. And it can be seduced pretty easy. The Lord knows these things. And He's not coming and saying, man, if you don't give, I don't know what we're going to do here in heaven. He's not sweating. The Lord knows what our hearts are inclined to do. And so He said, you know what? I'm going to set up this safeguard where the very first thing that you ever do with the things I've blessed you with is that you keep it all in check and remember where it came from. Bring back to me. While the Lord does not need our money, I will say this to you. The Lord desires our faithfulness. The Lord desires our affection. And He desires our obedience. But let's go a step further. The Lord not only desires those things, He deserves them. The Lord deserves your faithfulness. The Lord deserves my affection. The Lord deserves our obedience. The Lord wants to be your greatest treasured possession. And I don't know if you're aware of this this morning, but I'm praying that this sinks in you, that's how he thinks about you. He says so right here. Look at verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Can you imagine having that conversation with God? God sits down next to you and says, you've been a little bit hard on me. That, that ought to alarm you a little bit. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But here we are questioning again. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping His charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? In other words, the people within their hearts are saying, what good is it? I mean, like, what am I going to get out of serving the Lord? of bringing back to the Lord. What's in this for me, God? And they go on here to say, remember, um, we're looking around us and the people who, they don't live for you, you're not doing anything about their lives. You're not doing anything about the evil. So why should we really even care? Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. I hope that you have godly friends if you don't i got great news there's some folks in this room that can help with that but i hope that you have friends in your life that every once in a while maybe there's a morsel of something within you the spirit of god saying maybe this is a bad decision that you would turn to those friends and say hey 
do you think I'm looking at this wrong? Do you think I'm missing something here? And I hope that you and I would also be the friend to say, yeah, you are. You are. At this moment, the people of God finally got together and began to chat about who God is and what God has done. They, they spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. That's you. That's you. That's me. God says to the to the world, you know who, you know what my treasured possession is? It's those children of mine whose hearts are beating after me, chasing after me. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Maybe today, for the very first time, you need to prayerfully consider stepping out in faith and bringing back to God what He's asked of you. Maybe that's where you are today. And if that's the case, again, I'm, I, I, I pray that you will understand it's not because the Lord needs your money. It's not because the church needs your money. It's because God has asked it of you. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to leave today and your family needs to sit down around the lunch table or something and pray about, hey Lord, how do you want us to sacrifice this Christmas so that we might give in order that, and I know that we're almost desensitized to this, but in order that a family might have a roof over their head. In, in order that, and I know that we're all a bit ignorant to the truth that this is an actual reality, but so that a family in my very own community will wake up on Christmas and not worry about whether or not there's food in the pantry. That happens. And I know that you may want that iPad, and you may want that video game, and you may want those socks, but, you know, it's, it, we, we were talking about this in the last service. I don't know that I have ever uttered the word, I need socks. I don't live in that world. I have like 40 pair of socks. Now, if one of them gets a hole in it, I automatically think, I, got, I need new socks. No, I don't. 39 more pair. And I'm probably undershooting that number. But maybe that's the conversation that you and your family need to have. Wherever we are this morning, you might be at a place where you're, you're, you're thinking, Brian, that sounds great. And I would love to be there, but I just don't know how I can make that work. You don't understand where I'm at financially. I want to have that, that kind of faith, but I just don't know how I can make that work. I don't mean to be crass or insensitive, but I will tell you this morning, the only response I would know to have to that is, I don't know how you can't. I really don't. Several years ago, there was a young couple 
and they had their first child. And the young woman was a professional, had a great job, fully intended to go back to work. But after her first baby was home for a little while, and so was she, she, she began to be grieved by the idea of leaving her child. I don't want to go back to work right now. I want to be here with my baby. And she began to do a little bit of homework and discovered that it was going to cost $1,000 to break the contract with her employer. And as you can imagine, this young couple did not have $1,000 lying around. I'm actually not certain they had $1,000, period, ever. But the husband said, let's pray. Let's pray and let's ask God, what do you want to do? Because Lord, you know what we're feeling and you know what's grieving our hearts. We want to know what you want from us here, Lord. And they shared with a few of their very, very close friends what was going on and what was grieving them and what they were praying and asking God to do. And about a week later, this guy goes to work. Halfway through the day, the office manager comes in, puts an envelope down on his desk and says, I can't tell you where this came from, but I was told to give it to you. And she walked back out. And he opened up the envelope, and there were 10 really crisp $100 bills in that envelope with a little sticky note on it, and all the sticky note said was, we love you. And that guy picked up the phone and called his young wife at home and told her what happened, and they laughed and cried over the phone, and the rest is history. That is one of the countless times I could share with you that God is taking care of that woman and me. Now, let's make sure we understand promises and principles. Am I telling you that if you go home today and pray for God to deliver you that $1,000 you need, that it's going to show up in an envelope? No, I'm not. I, I don't know how God might provide for you. When I was 10 years old and my dad was still in seminary, my mom and dad sat my, dad, my brother and I down and said, we're moving to Mississippi. Your dad's going to go to work at a church. Great. We pack everything we own. We move to Mississippi. Seven days later, my parents sit us down and they say, as sure as we know God told us to move here, God is telling us to go back. And we're moving back to Texas. Okay. In seminary housing, the apartments that we lived in, they were the nice apartments. There was a waiting list as long as there are as many people in this room. We got our apartment back. My dad left seminary in the middle of a semester. My dad got back in his classes. My dad got his job back. My mom got her job back. We couldn't pay the rent, and the very day that it was due, my dad opened the door, and there was an envelope taped to our door with the exact amount of money in the envelope that we needed to pay the rent. Again, am I telling you that's what God's going to do for you? I am not. Because I don't know how God might provide for your needs. But I do know this. God is faithful. God is faithful. He is. And everything that he has required of us in our lives, it is because he loves us. 
And yes, I will tell you, he wants to not only test, but stretch your faith to the point of, ouch, God, that kind of hurts. But it is always for his glory, and it is always for your good. And he will supply your needs according to his riches. When you trust him. God is faithful. Let us be faithful as his people. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning acknowledging that there are days and weeks and months and seasons where the stuff and the things of this world um, really do seduce our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would help us realize today that our money our jobs our, our, our homes these are all these tools that you have placed within our care to use to honor you, to advance your kingdom. We pray that you would help us to see things clearly and correctly today, Lord. That you truly are the great provider. that you care for us more than anything else in your creation. So much so that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you sent your son. Paul says Jesus is a gift too wonderful for words. Lord Jesus, this morning we agree with that. We know that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. Lord, may you be the most treasured possession that we have. Lord Jesus, we pray for this offering, the gift that we bring this Christmas. Lord, that you will move and work in and through us. That we might be able to very, very powerfully meet the needs of people, understanding that Sometimes meeting that physical need opens up someone's heart and their life to seeing their greater need of you.
Lord, in these moments, we, we worship You and exalt You. And we pray that You would be honored and glorified through the obedient lives of Your people. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.